My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Woodbury. Welcome back to another episode of Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. I am so glad that you are here with us today. My guest this week on the show is Owen Ashworth of Advanced Bass, Cassiotone for the Painfully Alone, and Arundel Records. He is an artist and a musician and a label guy, as I've outlined. And uh, we have been talking about having him on the podcast forever because I'm a big fan of his music and I love his minimalist, uh, kind of stark folk pop songs that nonetheless have like a real cool homespun electronic edge. Uh, and, I, and I'm a big fan of his label. Um, Arendel has putting out all sorts of great stuff. I'm a big fan of the, of the Wednesday group. They did a cool session for Aquarian Drunkard's Lanyap session, so you should check that out if you have not already. And uh, and yeah, and I just knew that getting a chance to sit down with Owen was going to be great. Uh, we talked about a lot of my favorite topics. We talked about Joe Para, previous Transmissions guest Joe Para. Uh, we talked uh, a little bit about Bruce Springsteen, uh, specifically Bruce in the I like when Bruce Springsteen uses a synthesizer. You, well, we'll get into it, so I don't want to spoil too much of that. But um, yeah, it was a great treat to have Owen on, and uh, and I really, really enjoyed speaking with him and uh, getting a chance to connect. And uh, I think you're going to really uh, enjoy this talk. But before we get into it, I, I do want to encourage you that if you like transmissions, if you like our weekly interviews and the archive, which features all sorts of conversations with uh, people like Beverly Glenn Copeland and uh, Sam Precock of uh, Sea and Cake, uh, Richard Thompson, Michael Rother, uh, members of Sonic Youth, Margot Price, the list goes on and on. If you dig uh, your access to that archive and to our weekly shows, um, please do us a favor and help spread the word about transmissions. Leave us a five-star rating, uh, maybe jot down a few words um, I'm going to do something that I, I, I kind of, I wondered whether or not this would maybe be cheesy to do, but I decided, um, that life is too short to worry about whether or not what you're doing is, is cheesy. Um, and I'm going to read one of the reviews that we got, uh, as an example of the sort of, uh, the sort of thing that is, is, is really great to, um, to read and, and helps people understand what this show is up to. This comes from Matt, JZ75, who said, everything about this podcast is wonderful, whether it's a guest I know very well or one I have never heard of, Jason is equally prepared to engage deeply and meaningfully. 
I don't know that that's always the case, Matt, but I appreciate you saying so. His love of the music and the community it brings and his honest enthusiasm in our age of cynicism and irony is a blessing for my thirsty soul. I am not sure if I prefer the episodes where I know the guest and can follow all the paths they travel or the episodes that point me towards new paths of music and artists to explore for the first time. Get over to Patreon and support this show. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Justin. Thanks, AD. Matt Z in NYC. Uh, Matt, absolutely, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for leaving that review. And uh, I hope that by sharing it today, it inspires you to do the same thing. And like Matt said, if you want to take your support even further, you can hit up Aquarium Drunkard on Patreon. And we really, really appreciate the support of our patrons. Um, and I know that, uh, that, that one of the things that they uh, dig is when we offer advanced access to things. So we're going to be offering a lot more advanced access to our podcast. Uh, you're going to be able to hear them before they hit the, the regular feed because we've got a real, uh, we've got a lot of them banked up, and I think that it's going to be cool to, to offer some advanced access to the patrons over there. So, uh, with that out of the way, uh, why don't we uh, get into uh, my conversation with Owen? Uh, I hope you enjoy it. I will speak with you a little bit more on the other side. Thanks for tuning in to Transmissions. Staring up at the tower. Watching the big lights spin Hypnotized by the silver paint That cut right through the dim That's how Elise imagined him He was never seen again Putting your music up online is not always the easiest thing in the world to figure out, but DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and... As an artist, you keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, all the major streaming services. You can use it to edit your lyrics and your song credits. So important in the internet age to let people know the kind of people you're collaborating with. And uh, DistroKid makes that easy. You can also see all your stats from the streamers and, of course, add a credit card to purchase album extras. The DistroKid app is available now on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. I see we're both in very similar spaces, uh, yeah. i.e. too much crap in one room, probably. Yes, yeah. <laughs> this is like the Arendelle office, basically, where I do all my mailing. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to to join us here on Aquarium Drinker Transmissions. Oh, my pleasure. I think we just started the interview, so if that's cool with you. Oh, great. I'm ready. <laughs> I uh I was looking back over our emails and um I said uh we should we should talk in February and that was a year ago that I said that. And I was talking about <laughs> February yeah. 2021, but uh as of the time of this recording, it's February 2022. So I was right. I was just off a, a year. Um, I appreciate your patience. <laughs> time is meaningless. No problem. That's true. Time is meaningless, right? That's how the last couple of years have felt. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's it doesn't work the way we always expect it to. Certainly. Uh, I went on my first tour in a couple of years in December, kind of right in the little window where 
things felt like they might be heading back to normal. Yeah. And, uh, I got to see a lot of friends I hadn't seen in a few years, and I was just absolutely shocked at how old everybody looked. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm sure I'm giving the same impression, but I was like, well, oh, yeah. Yeah, we've all been living our lives in the meantime. Everything hasn't been, you know, frozen in amber the way it's kind of felt. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Uh, and, the la- and the last couple of years have probably aged us more than normal years might. Uh, it's certainly in some cases, I'm sure. I feel it for, yeah, I feel about 10 years older. <laughs> um, well, so something I was thinking about was your latest album is is called Wall of Tears and Other Songs I Didn't Write. And I think I first saw you in maybe in 2007 at the Trunk Space. Uh, oh, wow. My band opened a show for your for, for Cassio Tone and the Donkeys, I think. No kidding. What was your band? Oh, I never talk about it on the podcast, and I'm super, okay, emba- I'm super embarrassed. But I, 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 well, no, I'll say it. I might as well. We were called Hands on Fire, and uh, we did a few shows. You know, I mean, we we played around Phoenix for for a few years. Yeah. Um, but I remember at that show you covered Springsteen's uh, "Streets of Philadelphia," which, yeah. When I look back on it now, that helped kick off for me the recognition that Springsteen's like keyboard and drum machine sort of. Uh, era which maybe is like yes that song uh secret garden secret garden uh yeah. a lot of tunnel of love i guess mm-hmm. i think that maybe is is some of my favorite springsteen stuff so i feel like you you helped open my ears to the beauty of of gloss era springsteen oh that's amazing yeah that's so nice to hear i remember we we did an interview maybe around that same time maybe it was a couple years before or after but i was going through emails and i saw an email from you from forever ago i was like we've totally talked before i mean i've mostly known you from aquarium drunkard and you know you know emailing here and there but um yeah it was probably for the new times maybe uh that sounds right i think so yeah 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 it's crazy to think about like the fact that that was as talking about time is meaningless right i mean yeah at this point i mean you've been doing music for well over 30 years is oh no no not 30 20 20 uh um, how long has it been let me rephrase yeah that's a really good question i think the first cassia town show i played was either i think right at the end of 98 yeah um uh yeah so a good long time yeah um don't make me do math i won't i won't make you (laughs) i won't make you do math yeah that's i remember like mid 90s touring up and down i mean i went i was living in california and portland and seattle and kind of bouncing up and down the west coast um and doing just a lot of you know i5 corridor tours Mm -hmm. but i distinctly remember buying a springsteen greatest hits tape at uh the business in anacortis washington and that and nebraska being two tapes i listened to in like heavy rotation um just doing a lot of that touring but yeah that greatest hit springsteen tape really really got under my skin and yeah secret garden and streets of philadelphia in particular were uh yeah were heavy hitters i guess maybe my hometown kind of falls into this too a little bit it's not quite the same but yeah i think that that's a you know a couple years ago or whenever it was he put out that b-sides thing and it had a cover of dream baby dream the suicide song which obviously you know nebraska is like a a, is deeply indebted to to suicide um which i think is why that one has sort of 
cachet among people who might dis like discount a lot of Springsteen in general. You know what I mean? Yeah. That was kind of my way in. Um, I, I was kind of peripherally aware of Springsteen as, you know, I felt like the, the rich kids in my school would come, come back from summer vacation with Springsteen t-shirts because <laughs> their family once saw yeah. a big E string band show. But that just seemed like such luxury music to me because <laughs> um, I remember my dad making some crack about how expensive the shows were. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, other than a few songs here and there on the radio, I wasn't so familiar until I kind of started getting into like punk and some, you know, early electronic bands and uh, got into suicide. And someone was like, you know, there's this Springsteen song that is, it's just complete, you know, suicide yeah. homage. And uh, that was kind of my way in and kind of, you know, went backwards from there. But yeah, the softer side of Springsteen was always kind of the stuff that I latched onto more than, you know, yeah. the big E Street band blowouts. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, yeah, covers, uh, you performing other people's songs, you know, that's kind of a thread that runs through a lot of the discography. Um, you, you, you tend to, you know, they're, they're, it seems like covers mean a lot to you. I, I wonder, what what are some of the first songs that you learned to, to play or that you covered live or anything like that, if you think oh, wow. all the way back? That's a good question. Well, the first instrument I played was my, I have an uncle named Jim Reitzel, who's a, uh, uh, he's like a bass player. He plays with Craig Jaquiso from Jefferson Starship. He's kind of like on, um, like, uh, the, I guess like the winery tour circuit. Cool. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Plays a lot of lawn shows, but he was just like a career working musician as I was growing up. And he gave me my first bass when I was like 14 or 15. I remember learning all the bass parts to uh, like the first couple of PJ Harvey records. And that was like the first time I really was trying to dissect music or, you know, figure out, yeah. you know, structures and chord changes and things like that. Um, but as far as uh, Cassiotone, it was a little while before I really felt like I had the confidence to try to sing other people's songs in front of people. But yeah, that Bruce Springsteen Streets of Philadelphia, that was that was one of the first ones and it yeah it really seemed to i don't know it 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 seemed to click with people and it's something about my aesthetic worked well with that song and i think it yeah kind of sent me in a new direction with my own writing yeah um uh later i covered the 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 neil young song from that same soundtrack the philadelphia and oh, yeah. I considered considered for a short time just going for the full soundtrack. But <laughs> what else is just, on it? I don't remember. Is there's there... a uh, there's a Sade song. Okay. Which is great, but that was I mean that that pretty much stopped me. I was like, I can't I can't <laughs> sing this song. I don't know. It's beyond my abilities. I don't know. I don't I don't know for sure that that's true. Uh, but I but I I understand why one might think that. You know, she's pretty yeah. uh she's pretty intimidating. It's difficult to imagine stepping into those shoes. Um. But you know, like at, earlier this year, there was sort of—I've been thinking a lot about because I, I understand that maybe uh, another one of the sort of influences in, in you releasing uh, an album of, of all other, you know, renditions of other other writers' songs was I think you you noted that like karaoke is kind of an important thing to you as well, right? Yeah, that's something I, I did on tour more than anything else. My my wife has never been super into karaoke, um, so. You know, I would go on tour with other bands and 
um it was a if we had like an early show it was always a fun thing to do after a show is going to find a karaoke bar in a weird city yeah and you know sing with a bunch of strangers um and the last tour i did kind of pre-lockdown um was with uh caleb from sinai vessel we were just two solo artists and caleb is a huge karaoke enthusiast so after our show in louisville kentucky we found we walked by a pizza parlor that was doing karaoke and we went into sing um and caleb was talking a big game about his karaoke abilities yeah. and uh and uh we were getting a little kind of competitive about it <laughs> but just very excited to hear each other sing and uh caleb ended up getting a like an important phone call and ducking out right before my number got called and he missed my song oh no and he was just kicking himself he felt really bad about it and i was yeah, whatever. It'd be, I was teasing him <laughs> about it, but I was just like, you're going to hear me sing this song and it's going to be spectacular. So I, it was the song that I sang was a, a Nancy Griffith song, Love at the Five and Dime, yeah. which is one of the songs I ended up recording for that Wall of Tears album. Yeah. But it was mostly just because I, I had to work up a version to surprise Caleb with someday. <laughs> so that night at the Louisville Pizza Parlor was the big inspiration for that that whole collection. I uh, I went back and I listened to... Well, I listened to your version. I listened to her version of that one. Um, and it's beautiful. I mean, it almost feels like a Judy Sill song or something to me. There's sort of yeah. like a, yeah. just a really, a really moving quality to it. And then the, the song I listened to also the, the Katie Olsen version of the title track. Yeah. And I was like, this is, this is great. That was from, I think it was from 87 and the album was called 80s ladies that it's from yes yeah <laughs> that's yeah i i wonder cuz streets of philadelphia is a little bit later than that that's like 93 or something but there's almost you know at some point the late 80s and the early 90s sort of sound like they're it's its own little island you know um i wonder if that yeah. if that aesthetic is something you know is that stuff that you would would you have been hearing songs like that on the radio what what would you have been hearing kind of at that time i felt i mean late 80s early 90s my folks didn't listen to a ton of music they had like a couple of like lyle lovett tapes in the car and uh we listened to a ton of Credence. Uh, my folks grew up in the Bay Area, and they went to the rival high school of John Fogarty, and yeah. John Fogarty like, had like played at their homecoming. And I feel like he was just like this real um, hero to both of my folks, and kind of I felt like really representative of their youth in the Bay Area. So that was music we just listened to all the time as a kid. But um, I don't remember listening to much radio that wasn't just like NPR. Yeah. Um, but like Kate, Katie Oslin and uh, uh, Nancy Griffith and some of the other artists that you know I covered on that album are all kind of you know folk Americana country artists. Um, a lot of stuff from the '80s, and that's stuff I've come to more recently. And honestly, just the, kind of the aesthetic of those Katie Oslin albums, like the production, I found initially pretty repellent. Sure. And uh, um, but I was so kind of captured by captivated by her voice and her story i mean she was this old she was in her late 30s by the time she kind of broke through in country music yeah and kind of a weird i felt like it was the last era of not like magazine beautiful you know women could like, get up on the charts in country music i mean it's kind of the same era as like the judds but i felt like 
I was just really interested in the fact that this woman late in her, you know, in the, in, in middle age had kind of broken through and worked super hard and wrote beautiful songs yeah. but, and had some big hits, but was never like a superstar. Um, you know, it wasn't until she, she died like last year and some friends, uh, had, had, had talked to me about how important that music was to them as kids. And so it was kind of a borrowed nostalgia where I was, I went back and watched a bunch of music videos and um, it, yeah, it really felt like someone else's memories, but I, I don't know, something about her really captivated me. And like, I loved her writing yeah. more than anything, but yeah, kind of just kind of pushed through the aesthetic and started learning how to play the songs and was really challenging about what, challenging myself about what was it about the sound of these recordings that wasn't connecting with me, but something about the songs was and what yeah yeah what did you sort of feel what was it about the i mean obviously that production like i think so much about how the aesthetics of of yesteryear you know it's like yeah there i i mean i feel like i have a cyclical sort of relationship with some of those sounds you know what i mean like mm-hmm. like yeah as time goes on uh, I mean, as a kid, you maybe I heard stuff, and I I didn't ha- I didn't ever, I never thought about radio production when I was a kid or music production yeah. when I was a kid. Obviously, yeah. you just hear it. Then you hear it later, and it's like you. I feel like in like maybe like 2017 or something, like everything from the 90s all of a sudden started to sound kind of cool to me. You know what I mean? I was just yeah. like, uh-huh. oh, I love the way this Cheryl Crow record is produced or whatever. You know? Um, yeah. And I know that that's like just that cyclical nostalgia mm-hmm. wave thing, but at the same time, I wonder if there's if there's more, you know, to it, or if there can be more to it. I like the idea of borrowed memories, for example, like you're saying, like somebody else's nostalgia feels more maybe approachable than your own, right? Yeah, it was. I mean, I felt like I was a way of kind of connecting with my friends too, of yeah. just kind of like getting into the stuff that they were sentimental about. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think just growing up with my parents, the era that, you know, they did in the 60s in the Bay Area, and they were, you know, kind of flirting around like hippie culture. And um, my mom went to Berkeley, um, and they're just bumming around the Bay Area at the time that like, there was this explosion of psychedelic music. My dad got really into like kind of like folk stuff and saw, you know, saw John Fahey play in Berkeley. Um, so I feel like there is something about like a 60s production value and aesthetic that is just the most comforting and yeah. just like you know it's like comfort food um it's like those are those are you know there's something about just you know tube amps and uh and just the the way reverb was used and yeah. just live room sound that that is always what kind of just sounds natural to me for sure um so i think i'm I've been, in more recent years i've been pushing myself to try to appreciate um you know just different sonic palettes and uh yeah, that was kind of the exercise of working through that Wall of Tears album. It was you know John Prine is, is an example, one of my favorite songwriters, and for the most part, the production of his albums I find right Ob- pretty challenging. Objectionable. And his live, <laughs> yeah, his live recordings where it's just him and his guitar is that that was the stuff that really hit me. Um, so I, and I I so I was just kind of working backwards trying to dissect that kind of those arrangements and production styles that just don't naturally appeal to me and, you know, try to pull out the songs um, and just try to have a different kind of appreciation for, for that writing. For sure. When, so, you know, you mentioned that when you kind of started picking stuff up for yourself, that 
you know, it was like learning PJ Harvey stuff that was that, yeah. was, that was kind of pivotal. What what was uh, what, I mean, did you start writing songs pretty immediately into playing music? I made a lot of like noise tapes. Like the first time I had access, I got a bass, and my uncle actually also gave me this old karaoke machine just to use as an amp, just because it was you know had a sure. big speaker speaker and had a really fucked up spring reverb in it. <laughs> um, so I immediately started just messing with feedback and layering, like taping over the erase head of a ta- of a cassette tape so I could do multi tracking. Yeah, and just you know, making these noise collages. And I I did that for an audience of no one, like all through high school. (laughs) That was just me messing with sound. Then when I went to college and met some other folks who were kind of into the same, you know, there's a lot of college radio informing my listening tastes. And there's a lot of kind of like punk and alternative music that I was getting into. And once I started meeting folks who were into the same music as me, kind of for the first time at San Francisco State University, which is where I went to college, um, yeah, I just, I started to get a little more confident about, um, you know, sharing my music ideas. And, uh, uh, so I, the first show I played was, I was, I guess I was probably 20. It was the first time I had written just a handful of songs and it had made tapes just to share with friends. And one of them was, uh, supportive enough to kind of coax me into playing it my first show. Yeah. That's awesome. I did want to say to touch on the topic. Uh, shout out to cool uncles who. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I had a cool uncle too who who like let me borrow guitar stuff and had like a wild CD collection of a lot of prog rock actually. Um, but there Beautiful. was but there was like some cool there was like some Tangerine Dream in the mix. So so I nice. would be like listening to like Tangerine Dream and like acoustic alchemy or whatever was this thing he used to have it was like kind of new agey but not yeah it was really goofy but i liked it and it was like it's so funny to think about how i was into that stuff before i got into like pop punk and indie music and emo and stuff so it's like when eventually i start working in a record store and people play me you know can or other you know cosmic german music or whatever and it's like yeah oh, i have kind of a frame of reference for this and then when i start hearing yeah. fahey i'm like oh i kind of have a a, f- a frame of reference for this it's like Wyndham hill or something you know what i mean it's like sure it's funny yeah. the way stuff comes around and how cool it is that uncles uh specifically you know or like <laughs> or whoever older brothers or older sisters yeah. or cool aunts you know uh, that's such a yeah. that's such an important thing yeah, so much of my early listening is was my folks record collection and I still have. Yeah. Yeah, I go through the collection and every fifth record has my dad's name written on the top corner <laughs> of a record, which is something that people don't do anymore. Right. But- <laughs> no, I know. I know. Everybody's records are like investments, you know. It's like uh yeah. <laughs> we're going to trade in when the when the vinyl gold rush ends or whatever. I'm kidding. Uh But uh but no, I, I know what you mean. And it's it's interesting to hear that Credence was something that you heard because you know, one of the things that I like about your records that I liked certainly about Cassiotone when I first started hearing your stuff way back when, you know, was like that idea of of uh, minimalistic sort of like layering, you know, which I think is like when you think of Credence, like those records sound perfect, right? But there's usually not yeah. a lot going on, right? It's like a, no, it's like yeah. one track of, of kind of each of the foundational elements and stuff. Did yeah. you you know how how soon into when you were writing these songs and getting coaxed into playing a show around 20 
was was recording already an interest at that point? Did you start record? Well, you you mentioned you were taping over the tape head with the karaoke machine, so sounds like pretty yeah. pretty early on that became a facet of it. Yeah, just messing around with cassette tapes and kind of building collages. Or I feel like I just had more of an interest in like mood and tonality than any kind of musical theater theory more than anything. And you know, right. I I am I have such a rudimentary relationship with like you know with composition still like my you know i write the simplest of of songs um but it was just all always about like the tones and the feeling were the thing that kind of brought me to it and then um very simple kind of story kind of style lyrics but just kind of trying to build a little moment where i'm i feel like i'm just conveying just a feeling more than anything was the thing that I was always kind of shooting for. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And so when you went to school though, you were studying film, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, um, uh, watched a lot of movies. I mostly had like film theory classes. I had very few actual production classes, but, um, I was working at movie theaters at the same time. Those are all my early jobs through high school and college. So I just saw a shit ton of movies, like everything that would, that came out for a, seven year stretch i just saw everything what were movies that were important to you in those days um uh the terrence malick movie badlands is one that i saw in a film class that really hit me uh i thought it was just like incredibly beautiful writing and like a really beautiful looking movie and the music was so great yeah yeah um that just anything that will kind of just create an atmosphere and drop me into a feeling where I feel like that those are the moments I kind of remember from from music or movies more than anything. It's just kind of this nonverbal, just kind of emotion and atmosphere. So I feel like anything that can kind of bring me to an experience like that is the stuff that like really sticks with me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there is a, um, oh my God, I saw a ton of French new wave movies and, the aesthetic of those was really exciting. It's just like they felt really, you could really kind of see the fingerprints and um, I don't know there's just like this tactile quality to the way that the editing was done that re- really a- appealed to me. Uh, I'm totally blanking on the name of this filmmaker. There's this movie called A Portrait of a Young Girl in Brussels in the late 1960s. Um, a Belgian filmmaker uh, I can't believe I'm not remembering her name right now. I wish um, I knew. You can look, it up, look yeah. it up. I'm gonna look it up really quick. Um, Live in the moment, this is happening. We're gonna le- we'll leave this part it? in. Yeah, I dig it. Oh, good. Everyone will love this. <laughs> um, the director's name is Chantel Ackerman. Mm. Um, and she made a lot of like super minimalist structuralist films. And she was actually, she had a huge influence on my kind of, you know, film appreciation. Cause, she, Cause the first thing I saw by her was just kind of this beautiful portrait of, of, of teenagers. That was like a narrative film, but she also made some really experimental structuralist films and some really like patience pushing like long, like there's this film called Gene Dealman that is kind of like famous for just how, super boring and long until <laughs> it is yeah uh, yeah but I, something about that kind of patience pushing um i loved the challenge of experimental film and just kind of having having to develop a different kind of attention uh 
Um, so I would go to the Cinematheque in San Francisco and just go to full evenings of silent experimental films like Stan Brackage and, yeah, yeah. Weird, and Harry Smith's films. Right. And uh, just pushing my attention to this kind of like uh, almost like psychedelic zone where <laughs> I'm leaving my body watching this film. I, I wonder how... Uh... I think back to my uh, early 20s and and the amount of patience that I had for things like that, you know, yeah. and then like you said, the sort of like attention pushing quality and trying to say, yeah. like, can I stretch this out more? Can I can I uh, allow myself this sort of like freedom to to be in this mood, like you said, to really get yeah. into that? I think about how much more difficult that is now uh, for me, you yeah. know, with with Same. the amount of. I mean, you, you're a you're a dad. You've got responsibilities. You've got a family. You're running a label. You're doing a lot of things, obviously. But even beyond all of my commit my commitments, you know, I still struggle with it because even when I have time to do yeah. it, it's like I miss that that kind of patience that I had as a as a younger person. But I don't think it's like necessarily yeah. part of it. Probably is just when you're young and you know leisurely in that way. But then mm -hmm. there's another part. Yeah. I think. I don't I don't think our attention spans are what they used to be culturally even, you know? That's absolutely true. Yeah, this is all, you know, pre cell phones and everything, the thing that completely smashed my attention. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I felt like I was such a sponge when I was young and just I just want I was taking in anything new that I could and I can so much of it is informed my personality. Yeah. Um but, uh, you know, I feel like so much of that is just kind of like baked into my DNA at this point. But I don't know if I'd have the patience to sit through or revisit a lot of that stuff that I think was really like formational for, for, for my personality. And, you know, d definitely my like, you know, artistic uh, aesthetics or what have you. That, that kind of leads nicely into something I wanted to ask you about, which is how you got hooked up with Joe Pera, uh, who's a favorite of oh, mine. Oh, wow. And, and, the, yeah. and a transmissions, previous transmissions guest, I'm thankful to say. Yeah. Um, how, how did you meet Joe? Because, I mean, you did some work with his relaxing old, fo his, for, his relaxing old footage special, yeah. right? Well, yeah, it's all thanks to David Bazan. Um, you know, David and Joe Pera had done an interview a, a while back and uh as soon as i saw that it had happened you know dave's a friend of mine and i texted him and i was like oh man i'm a huge joe para fan it's so cool you all got to talk um and i was just excited that that connection had been made um and this was kind of heading into pandemic i did like a live stream show that that dave was watching and i think it just suddenly occurred to him like oh i think joe might actually like owen's music too yeah and and i think maybe send him a, a link to some of my music and it happened to be as joe was putting together that relaxing old footage special and i think one of the songs just really clicked with him during the editing process and he got in touch pretty quickly and it was like this is who I am. This is what I do. And I was like, ah, I'm already a huge fan. Wow. Yeah. Um, but it, yeah, it, but he, you know, asked if I would be free to, for a phone call and it, it all happened really fast. Um, you know, I feel like there, we really have a similar kind of, uh, temperament and kind of like shared aesthetic. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, we were emailing for a while and, uh, just got along great. We are both like lighthouse enthusiasts, and Joe was kind enough to send me send me the research materials 
that he had assembled for the lighthouse episode. <laughs> That's so cool. The show, which is like, I already had a bunch of lighthouse books, but I, you know, these are the books that he kind of had underlined oh. and, you know, do- dog eared. Um, so it was, it was such a sweet, it was such a sweet gesture. Um, but we just met in person for the first time in December. I went to New York and, and uh, had a few shows and had asked Joe if he'd wanted to stand up at one of the shows. And yeah. to my surprise, he said, yeah. And, uh, my favorite show of the tour was getting to share the stage with Joe Para. You know, he did stand up and I, I played my songs and that's, it was such a good night. That's so cool. I wish I could have been there. That sounds incredible. Oh, hopefully we'll be doing more of it. I think we both had a really good time with it. Um, you know, yeah. it's funny that you brought up Terrence Malick. I, I, I think there's Malick in the Joe Para Talks With You DNA oh, in, a, in a major way. Absolutely. I agree. Yeah. There's just like, there's a patience to it, but just this, I don't know. There are just moments of just like overwhelming beauty in yeah. both his show and those Malik movies where there's just like giving you a second just in the natural world that is just like so gorgeous and you can just kind of, you know, ruminate and just like stew in it for a minute. And yeah, that's right. And then, yeah. and then he'll undercut it with just like, one of the funniest things you've ever heard, you know? <laughs> yeah. And to, yeah. to me, like, there's a, a definitive magic that exists in that, like, um, in that, in that place where, like, both, like, great beauty and great sort of, like, uh, it's almost like letting the air out of the, the grandiosity occasionally, you know? It just works yeah. in such a nice rhythm. And something that I, I, I thought I'd, I wanted to ask you about <clears throat> as it, uh, relates to both your work and I think Joe's I would hear on like you know read on Twitter people sort of would be like, you know when people refer about to Joe Para talks with you they'll say like wholesome or you know whatever yeah. and and I don't I know where people are coming from of course mm-hmm. uh, but I wonder thinking back you know it also feels like there's a little bit of limiting happening there and a little bit of like discounting of stuff that uh, is happening as well, right? Because there are moments of the show that are extremely heavy too. And there are moments yeah, that yeah. are, that are, uh, there are moments also that are, are not wholesome. That it, it, can, uh-huh. it can be like every now and then like a little burst of profanity or profaneness is, yeah, is yeah. great too. So I was thinking, you know, You've covered, you know, the magnetic fields as well, you know, and and I remember with Cassia Tone for the Painfully Alone and, and other music that I liked at the time, you know, the word twee would get thrown around or yeah. or cute or whatever, and and I, and I can't yeah. I can't help but wonder if that's a similar kind of um, sort of aesthetic limiting, you know, to kind of yeah, put a li- to put a lid on that stuff. And and I and I really really thought about it before we got on today because I was like, what is that? And I think it's an in, it's a fear of embarrassment of sincerity, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. And I wonder how you've you know kind of grappled with that in your own work because it's not that you're always yeah. doing autobiographical stuff, but but the sincerity is always there even when you are talking yeah. about others, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think it's there's just a degree of um vulnerability yeah um, i think when people say wholesome often what they mean is there's a vulnerability there there's like an honesty and there's there's just there's there is just genuine love in what joe para makes in that show and i feel like there's like an openness and humor can be part of that i mean that that doesn't discount 
yeah, wholesome doesn't feel like quite right, but it's that's something I feel like, especially since I've been a parent, wholesome is a word that people have tacked on to, <laughs> yeah. to my personality more and more because I feel like I've really had to temper my uh, blue language just with you know, little kids around. <laughs> sure, where, sure. Uh, yeah, suddenly I've 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 turned out wholesome. <laughs> uh, I know what people mean when they say it, and I don't mean to discount that like attraction to we don't live. I mean, just like whatever. People need to seek refuge from the constant barrage of everything that is like our, you know, our news cycles, our our Twitter feeds, like the kind of yeah. like brutal one-upsmanship of everybody at all times to be the smartest, most cynical thing. You know, it's like, yeah, I can understand like a, a people being attracted to something that displays different qualities, you know, so I don't want to like I don't want to discount the, the, the word wholesome as a. Yeah. as a term because it's it's great it just doesn't feel like it's like it's other words maybe fit it better in my opinion you know patience is one and and, yeah. and sort of like a a kind of kindness that moves pretty far beyond just niceness you know what i mean mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i yeah i feel like that's that's something that's that's a, a part of your music too and for that matter D dave bazan's music another of course transmissions guest uh i'm thankful to say when did you when did you first hear Pedro the Lion or Dave stuff? Uh, well, the first <laughs> I remember the first time hearing David Bazan is or Pedro the Lion is um, uh, this would have been early two thousands. I was living with a girlfriend and uh, we weren't getting along great, and kind of our relationship <laughs> was on the way out. Yeah. At any time we were, you know, we needed space from each other. She would go in the bedroom, close the door, and put on Pedro the Lion. <laughs> so I mostly heard Pedro the Lion as kind of her personal comfort music through the door as I was, you know, doing something else. Yeah. Um, so it, <laughs> so not <laughs> my first, <laughs> my first experience with Dave's music was just like, oh, uh oh, I'm in trouble. Like, I, 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 up. yeah, I, I, yeah, I goofed up. Um, so yeah, it never, <laughs> it never <laughs> felt like my music for that reason. But, uh, um, I met actually Dave's manager, Bob on tour. He had just ended up at a show I played, um, actually probably that same tour is with the donkeys in uh, in, uh, Champaign-Urbana. And um, Bob was great. Bob bought every record I had for sale. And he's like, we'll be in touch. I really like your music. And then not too long after I got an offer to support some, I guess it's pretty early on in the Bazan kind of solo, just using his own name era. And uh, so, uh, yeah, I got this very lucky offer to play two weeks for shows of Dave kind of down the middle of the country. And I'd never toured with anyone like Dave before who was genuinely kind to everyone he met yeah. and didn't have an adversarial relationship with uh, venues and <laughs> sound engineers or audience. I felt like I had toured with a lot of punk bands where going on tour was like a fight yeah. and you were out there. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's, there's this aggress aggression that, um, I don't know. I felt like I, w I had such a chip on my shoulder from my early days of touring and then touring with Dave, I saw the way that, the relationships he cultivated with everyone he encountered was just had this sustainability to it and this um lovingness that i was like oh there is another way you can yeah yeah <laughs> you can be a genuine version of yourself and you know travel through the world and and you know have friends and not enemies yeah that's so that's really beautiful 
Yeah. So Dave was a big, I, he really kind of turned my head around just with kind of the sustainability of, um, you know, DIY touring and, uh, yeah, we, we hit it off pretty well. We've, we've remained friends. You know, I, I got like super into Pedro the lion when I was in high school and, uh, yeah, and that was just it was really because I was kind of coming out of like a religious you know framework, and uh, so his music resonated on that level, um, and, and musically it resonated and all the other stuff. But it was really it was he would he would at shows you know he would like open the floor up to the audience for questions. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I can't say how inspiring that was to me in terms of like encouraging the feeling that I could be involved in the thing that meant so much to me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So on one hand, that generosity and sort of kindness that you're talking about him extending to other people, I mean, even to the audience that was extended in a way that felt so different to me, but it was around the time that I, that he dropped the Pedro name that I started working as a music writer, you know, and I could interview him about stuff and something that came up, when he returned to the page of the lion name a few years ago was that he always sort of felt like it was a bad move to rebrand in retrospect. It was more difficult to rebrand um, yeah. because there was an association with the name and, and people knew what page of the lion was, but all of a sudden they didn't know who David Bazan was. And I was, I was blown away because it was like, well, it's already a solo project, you know? Um, yeah. As somebody who has gone through the exact same thing, I wonder, you know, mm-hmm. was he one of the people who maybe told you at first, maybe really consider whether or not you want to rebrand your band name? Or because I know that you've mentioned yeah. that, that people have had told you that before, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we had that conversation. I mean, there are a few other people. I talked to a few people were like, don't do it. You're going to be starting over. It's a terrible idea. Um, I think Phil Elverum was the one person that was like, oh, who cares? Just do whatever you want. He, it doesn't matter. Yeah, he would, yeah. right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And then I did it. I talked to him some years later, and I was like, oh, I feel like I'm starting from scratch. He was like, yeah, I, th- I, <laughs> I, I gave you bad advice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I mean, um, he also has now you know, returned to making records under the microphone. Interesting. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's, I hadn't thought about that. But um. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I really, I mean, I had kind of hit a wall with Cassiotone, um, and I I knew I just kind of wanted a fresh start yeah. and uh, to try something different. And I'd kind of had written the last Cassiotone record with the idea that it would be the last one, and I was really excited to write the end of the project. Um, so starting over, it felt really... I felt like very free. Yeah. Um, and it was exciting, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it was absolute challenge. I mean, the first advanced space tour, I was like, where, where is everyone? Yeah. <laughs> That's so weird. Um, do you, it's really humbling. Do you feel like, well, one, that sounds kind of intense to deal with actually, or, or it would be a, a little bit of a, a weird, a weird feeling, you know? Yeah. How did it start to turn around though? How did, did, did was it how did it feel as people did start to kind of catch up and realize what was happening? You know, did you did you feel more validated in the decision as that went on? I d- I did. I mean, it was a terrible business decision, but I think for my ego and personality, I think it was really important to have kind of have like a total humbling and just completely start over and rethink, you know, everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, and it, I feel like where advanced bases ended up is not too far off from where Cassiotone ended. Um, I'm still just, you know, 
goofing around with keyboards and drum machines <laughs> and standing up there by myself. But yeah, I mean, it took me a lot of work to get back to that place. And, you know, I was really young when I started Cassiotone and I took so much for granted with, I had a lot of really great opportunities thanks to the generosity of other you know musicians who would bring me along on tour. And um, I, you know, I feel like I am so much more appreciative and connected to every bit of work that it takes to you know tour and make records successfully now yeah and you know i when i I started with advanced space i started putting out my own records also so i I really kind of wanted to take control of every aspect of it and understand the work that was going to need to go into it so i i feel so much more grateful and connected to like every step of the process at this point i mean well right which obviously led to your own label and working with other artists and all that stuff. So yeah, that, that understanding yeah. of the whole thing from beginning to end. Yeah. It sounds like you've been able to extend that to others as well. I mean, just recently as of the time of this recording, at least we had uh, one of your great label, uh, one of your bands Wednesday did an incredible land yap session. Really one of my, yeah. really one of my favorites that we've done. Uh, it's up there with my all time favorites actually. Um, right. Oh, cool. And yeah. so great. So it's like, it's, it's clear that that you extending what others extended to you has continued on, which is a nice thing to see in this kind of like because it's not like the world of indie rock is a particularly uh it's not the easiest world to navigate i guess is what is what would be (laughs) maybe fair to say no i mean if you're approaching it as a business person it's 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 a nightmare um you i think you really need to be looking to get something else out of the experience than it just being your occupation for sure um uh, but yeah, no, it's been really rewarding to kind of be on the other side of the relationship to, you know, running a label now and, you know, have having, I've, you know, I have 20 years worth of mistakes behind me that I can, you know, warn others against. Um, so yeah, it feels like a, a nice place to be. Yeah. And I still have, you know, the plenty of people I still look up to as, you know, as heroes, Dave Bazan being one of them who are you continue to inspire me, but to be able to turn around and see that I'm able to help others out too. It, it's very rewarding. You mentioned that Cassio tone and uh, most of your work has been you on your own. Uh, I feel like the donkeys backed you up a little bit at that, at that show way back when. Um, yeah. And so that makes me want to, okay, I'll start with a comment. Then I'll follow with a question. The comment is, uh, the Donkeys, such an underrated band, such a great band. Yeah. I haven't caught up with those dudes in forever, but the last time we talked, we talked about their last record, their sort of post-apocalyptic uh, uh, Philip K. Dick-inspired concept album, which ruled. Yeah, um, It's been a minute. I know those guys are all busy and have lives and all that stuff, but I need to catch up with them, and they rule. So that's my comment. And then my question would be, you know... Uh, how often have you worked with like backing bands as well uh, over the, over the years? Is it just mm. special occasions? I mean, you know, when, when, ha- when, and where has that sort of occurred? Yeah. Well, it, it ended up doing two tours with the donkeys. Um, and we're, we're, I, you know, we wouldn't have a ton of time to rehearse. So we would maybe do half of my set together. That's what it and was they, that night. Yeah. 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 They did their own opening set and then I did some songs on my own at the end of the show. Uh, and I, yeah, I loved touring with them. I loved kind of just like sitting in on their band. Um, uh, I, you know, I love their music and I just, lo- I've known those guys for a long time. Um, I, but 
yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I've always kind of defaulted to doing music on my own. My old label um, in the Cassiotone days really put a lot of pressure on me to put like a band together. And they thought that would be the kind of the most legitimate version. Um, yeah. And, uh, but it never really came naturally. I, it always felt like a special occasion when I played with other people. And it just, being able to play on my own, I felt like there is like a freedom there that, it, it, I, it's like I, I can't, I can't match that freedom yeah. with other people on stage. And you know, if I was lucky enough to find a couple of amazing folks who were completely committed to playing my music, or you know, we made something together that we all felt like we had equal shares in, that'd be great. That just has never been the case with me. Music has always been like a pretty personal. Yeah, I mean, the way I write and the way I record is it's it's like there's it's like a it's a real meditation for me. Um, and I just I've it's t taken me a long time to accept that my relationship with music is just so totally inward. Sure. Um, but you know, when I have had the chance to play with bands, it it's, it's like going to like rock fantasy camp. Like I, <laughs> I, I it's, it's such a special and, and fun experience, but it has never felt particularly sustainable. Sure. Sure. I'm interested in this notion of, of music as meditation. Um, you mentioned that in December it was, it was, you got to go on tour. You got to play some live shows. Yes. Um, after a real long experience of not doing that, you know? Yeah. Was the pandemic at this point talking about the pandemic has just become so weird because we're, we're mm. not <laughs> fully past it. And yet there's yeah. been enough cycles of it that it feels like we can talk about certain parts in past tense versus others. Sure. You know? Yeah. But was that the longest you had been off the road? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I had, you know, you take something away and you realize like how everything else in your life was kind of leaning on it. Like it was such a performing live was such an important part of kind of my emotional life. It was like such a huge outlet for me. It was a way for me to connect with people in a way that I, I, I couldn't even do with like, you know, with, you know, my friendships or, you know, my personal relationships. Sure. Um, it was, I went through some like absolute genuine grief without it. And I kind of had to figure out a new way to kind of balance my life. Um, started going for a lot more walks, listening to like KT Oslin albums on headphones. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I've bought a lot more candles, Jason. I have a <laughs> candles are an important part of my life at this point. Just kind of had to figure out a new way to kind of have a little ritual to myself to kind of keep myself centered. Yeah. And uh, I kind of forgot how important music was for me. Um, I was very wary. You know, I booked this tour for December. I have all of these Christmas songs, and it's always been a real treat for me every December just to do some shows where I just play all my Christmas songs. And it feels like this is the one month out of the year I get to do this very specific show. Um, so I wanted to do that this December. Um, and I, I really wanted to be in New England and see some snowfall and have like a real Christmassy time on tour. Yeah. Um, but I started playing those shows and all of those feelings came back where I'm like, oh, I feel like there's something that I'm really good at that isn't really applicable to any other avenue in my life. Yeah. But just to be able to connect with an audience on stage, um, it's just, it does something for me. And it, I really lit a fire under me to be able to play those shows again. Um, 
and just to connect with my own music again, it felt really good. And I just, yeah, I'd forgotten just how important my songs are to me. Like I love singing and playing them. Yeah. I love that notion of it being an inward thing for you. Right. But then also you're on stage. And so, you know, yeah, you're sharing this vulnerable part of yourself. You're sharing the most inward part of yourself with people, you know, on stage, you know, does that meditative quality, how does that meditative quality differ, say, in the studio or while you're writing versus being on stage? Does it, or does is there does it feel like there's kind of a th- continuum or through line connecting them? That was kind of starting over with advanced bass after Cassiotone is I, you know, part of the reason I stopped wanting to do Cassiotone is it just, I wasn't really connecting with the songs the way I had when I was younger. And playing shows felt like this really disingenuous performance in this way this didn't feel good. And I was like, if I'm going to keep making music, I need to find a way that I feel like is I am representing myself on stage and it feels right. I feel like myself and I feel good about everything I'm presenting. So that was kind of, that's a big part of what the starting over was, but I've realized that what I wanted out of music was the same feeling I got just from rehearsing in, in my basement, or it's just, I was lowering my heart rate and really kind of getting really inward and very kind of meditative. And uh, that's kind of what the advanced space shows turned into. Like it's, it, it feels like way more new agey and personal and, uh, and uh, spiritual for lack of a better word than anything I'd done before, but and it, it is, there was, I had to let go of some embarrassment just to be kind of that vulnerable, vulnerable on stage yeah. where I was just, I was just, I, I really kind of lose myself in the songs in a way that I, I never really did before where I it's, I need it. I really need to have that time just with, with music um, just to get right. And it kind of balances me out for the, you know, the rest of my day. Is there any music that you just listen to that helps you, um, you know, listening to somebody else's music is different than playing it yourself, you know? Yeah. But but I wonder if there are moments where you sort of can, like, recognize a certain thing in a record or a CD or a tape or something that you, yeah. that you sort of like, oh, I kind of feel, I, I felt something like that in my own my own creative expression does that ever sure. happen yeah I, I feel like that was a really healthy part of pandemic for me is that my my listening life w- w- felt really rewarding in a way I hadn't in a while yeah mine too where, you know, yeah i went for a lot of long walks where i was just just listening to a record and I, I would leave the house and put on music and within a minute i would just be tearing up yeah. and i would just be crying walking around my neighborhood <laughs> and I, it, yeah, I it know. got it got me close to the same feeling of you know, when I was really connecting with my own music, you know, playing shows. Um, but, you know, a lot, you mentioned like sort of the German cosmic music, like Tangerine Dream. And um, I was listening to a lot of, I, I don't know what you call that genre of music, but, uh, you know, somewhat ambient, but just a little more freeform and expansive. And that music that just felt like pure emotion to me, that was just like beyond language and just like, just the most like intuitive and emotional um, music. So uh, I was falling asleep to discrete music by uh, Brian Eno, mm, like yeah. a lot. Um, so that, 
that music I really connect with. And so there's an aspect of that kind of music that I really tried to pull into my own songwriting. So between that and a lot of the kind of material that I covered on uh, Wall of Tears, like almost kind of like adult contemporary <laughs> American folk music that, you know, people past their 20s singing about real life stuff that I was just like absolutely just connecting with on an emotional level. And uh, yeah. I love that. That was really, really what was feeding me over the last couple of years. That's great. That's great. So what if, if, if it's not, asking too much what are you what are you working on these days that people might be able to kind of look forward to if there's anything that you feel comfortable sharing at this point yeah um i have fallen into a habit of mostly playing for pleasure and i'll go to the basement and just improvise for an hour and it as far as writing it does not feel productive <laughs> but, um i mostly just been playing for myself in this way that i need to i I am just starting to figure out how, kind of how to harness those improvisations towards something that can translate to, you know, recordings or, you know, composition. Um, but I have been going so hard with the Rindle the last couple of years that advanced bass has really been a secondary concern. I've been really sure. doing the label has been kind of at the front of my mind. Um, I'm intentionally taking on less label projects this year. So I have more time to kind of work on my own writing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I'm kind of in the middle of a, of about a, you know, a dozen half finished ideas right now that I'm kind of just been jamming on by myself in the basement. Well, I'm curious to see how those cohere when they do. Um, and obviously always look forward to hearing more and more stuff from the label, but, uh, Oh, and it's 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 been really really nice to to chat with you about yeah, likewise. about stuff. It's been a long time coming, but it was just as um just as refreshing and and great as I knew it would be. So, thank you so much for taking the time. I, thanks so much, Jason. Yeah, it's been lovely talking to you. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to transmissions i know we've got a lot of uh, a lot of there are a lot of things jockeying for your attention on the internet and uh i'm really uh it moves me that you are are here and that you've stuck around to this point in the podcast which is the very very end if you're listening right now it's because you're one of the diehards and uh, i sure do appreciate it uh, i'm jason p woodbury i write host and produce transmissions our audio is edited by andrew horton and our show is executive produced by Aquarium Drunkard's founder, Justin Gage. Don't miss the Aquarium Drunkard Show, which he hosts every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. PST on Sirius XMU. And uh, yeah, Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions is a part of the Talk House podcast network. Uh, rate, review, subscribe, all that stuff. Spread the word. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. It means a lot to me. And uh, we'll be back next week. I'll be joined by uh, musician and writer Sasha Frere-Jones uh, for a really awesome conversation that I think you're going to enjoy. Uh, that'll be next Wednesday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, this transmission is concluded. you last when you left this
Made good. You're all.